Uh, I'm excited right now because this past week, Pam and I celebrated our 41st wedding anniversary together. And of course, it brought back all kinds of memories of dating and college life, uh, fun memories, hilarious memories, but also some serious memories. In fact, I especially remember one very unusual first meeting. I'd asked Pam to marry me, and she graciously had accepted, and she was taking me home to meet her family for the first time. But at that meeting, something else took priority. Because the first time I met her family was in a hospital room. Her mother was recovering from surgery. They had found cancer. And so you can imagine that when we all met, something else was distracting us, a very deadly enemy. Until that time, cancer had been familiar to me, but really out of my life experience. But on that day, I put it on my list of terrible things. Years later, it would take my grandmother, and then it would threaten other members of my family. Some have even named it humanity's most feared enemy. Now, you may have another illness that, puts it, that you put at the top of your list of terrible things. In fact, I imagine if we open the floor for a discussion, uh, the list would be rather long of things that people hate among our physical ailments. But before we conclude that cancer or any other major illness is humanity's worst enemy, I want you to listen to a note that Pam's mother sent us at that time. It's entitled, Cancer is So Limited. Cancer is so limited. It cannot cripple love. It cannot shatter hope. It cannot corrode faith. It cannot eat away at peace. It cannot destroy confidence. It cannot kill friendship. It cannot shut out memories. It cannot silence courage. It cannot invade the soul. It cannot reduce eternal life. It cannot quench the spirit. It cannot lessen the power of the resurrection. And when I read this note from my mother-in-law, I thought of some other facts about cancer. Think about this. Cancer doesn't lie. It doesn't steal. It doesn't gossip. It isn't greedy. It isn't arrogant. Cancer doesn't batter wives or abuse children. It doesn't rape. It doesn't kidnap. It doesn't start wars. But it has a bigger brother that does all of those things. This bigger brother operates with much less press than cancer, and he likes it that way. He's often thought of as old-fashioned, and he likes that too, because when people dismiss him, well, then he can get just a lot more done. Old-fashioned name, sin. Yeah, it's one of those old religious words. 
And while people intellectualize it and rationalize it and maybe reject the whole thing, this big brother, sin, is bringing a deeper destruction than his little brothers ever thought of bringing. If you look at Jesus all through his teaching, especially the Sermon on the Mount, he is exposing this deadly enemy. And then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7, he says, make up your mind. And he gives that famous invitation that we're all familiar with. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. And he compares the earthly father who knows what his children need to the heavenly father who is infinitely, completely aware of what we need. And this is why we pursue God. And this is why we seek and ask and knock. And this is why the true seeker finds. But there is a big assumption here. Who is the true seeker? What are they asking about? What are they seeking? Whose door are they knocking on? And who will ultimately find God? I ask this because there's a growing viewpoint today that says all people are seekers. And I have to say that this rings true with my study of Scripture and my own experience in life. People are hungry, and they're on this lifelong search for purpose and for meaning. But this viewpoint I'm talking about goes a step further. In fact, it goes a huge step further. And it says that since all people are seeking God in their own way, they're all finding God in their own way. Do you think this is true? Do you think that people are really seeking and asking and knocking? And do you think all people are searching for God? For several weeks, Gordon has used the parables of Jesus as codes of the kingdom. And we've looked deep into our own hearts to look for hope and for purpose and for grace and trust. And we've also looked for caution and for failure, exhaustion, prejudice. We've seen it all. Well, this morning I want us to take several short sayings of Jesus and look at them in sequence as one leads to another. And they're not all stories, parables per se, but together Jesus uses them as a story and to tell a story that we all need to hear. And so if you would take your bulletin and if you'll turn to page 6 and let's look at some questions that I think Jesus is asking about the human search. I'm calling this asking honest questions. And here's the first question I want you to write down. Do all people search for God? Do all people search for God? Well, how does Jesus answer the question? Verse 13, enter through the narrow gate 
For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now, let's admit it. We are a multi-choice people. We like lots of channels, and we want more options on our cars and on our smartphones. And we really are excited about living in a city like Dallas because it has so many different places to eat. We like that. We're used to it. Something to fit everyone. And it's found its way into religion. Most want more options, more choices, or maybe even a conglomerate religion where it's just all thrown together. And I understand that we need to be relevant, and I understand that we need to speak the language of our culture. But Jesus says at the core of our faith, we really have two choices. And he's not the first to say this. This picture of two ways is used over and over in Scripture to describe the direction of our life. Proverbs 15, verse 19, describes the way of the sluggard and the way of the upright. Jeremiah 21, 8 says, I'm setting before you the way of life and the way of death. Psalm 1 contrasts the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And on it goes through Scripture. And here, Jesus follows this ancient course, two ways, two choices, Look at what he says. He says, one is broad, spacious. There's plenty of room here for everything. Room for a diversity of viewpoints and even conflicting viewpoints. No curbs, no boundaries, no parameters, anything. Anybody can follow and everyone can follow their own inclinations. But the other way, he said, is narrow. Not narrow-minded, what he means is it has boundaries, parameters, and they're clearly marked. And it has limitations for godly reasons, godly purposes. What is that purpose? What are the limitations? And who decides the boundaries? Well, look at the text again. Notice how Jesus uses the imagery of gates and roads and destinations and travelers to help us understand our two choices. He talks about gates because there are two different ways to enter. One is very wide. There's no limit to the luggage we can take through that gate. There's no need to leave anything behind, not even my selfishness, not even my pride. I don't need to make any assessments of my life. I don't need to evaluate anything because there's plenty of room. I can just bring it all. But he says the other gate is different. It's narrow. You don't just stumble through this gate. No, you have to look for it. You have to choose it. And God decides what you bring through, not you. He talks about roads because there are two different ways, two different styles of, of travel. One road allows you to wander all over the place. You don't have to have any travel plans at all. 
But the other road requires you to know where you're going. Purpose, focus, clear choices. And to travel this road, you have to leave everything behind. Greed, bitterness, everything. And then Jesus says there are two destinations, two objectives, two places we're going. And he's very painfully honest here. He has to be. Verse 13, he says one is destruction, but the other, verse 14, is life. And then finally he gets to us, the travelers. There's two kinds of traveling companions. And as you might guess, the broad way the easiest way, the way with no parameters, is chosen by the most people. And the narrow way, the way that I have to choose and focus, is chosen by just a few. Why did he take us through this uncomfortable text? His forced teaching of two gates and two roads and two destinations and two travelers, it answers our question. Do all people search for God? Clearly the answer is no. Most of the people will choose another way. A broader, wider, more crowded, easier way. But it doesn't lead to a good place. It doesn't go to a good place. So all people will not search for God. And so Jesus narrows the question. If all people will not search for God, then here's the next question I want you to write down. Do all religious people search for God? Yeah, we, we can figure out that all people won't, but, but surely all religious people are searching for God. What does Jesus say? Continue the reading in verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. The people that Jesus is describing here, we find them in every New Testament book. They thrive in a culture of multiple options. They keep adding them. And they look like any of the other sheep, but Jesus says, inside they look more like a wolf. He's not the only one that warns. Paul saw the same thing. And he told the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20, he says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. So both Jesus and Paul give the same warning. And it's been repeated for centuries. And that's because the purpose and the style of the wolf hasn't changed. Move into the flock, blur the issues, make it hard for the searcher 
to find the narrow gate. And so Jesus, once again, uses this two-ways metaphor to give us a few clues. He talks about two kinds of trees here, good and bad. And that raises, I think, some critical issues. Think about the tree. Where are people rooted? What is their source? Where do they draw their strength? What's their purpose? This tree that's rooted here, this person that's growing here. And then he talks about two kinds of fruit, two ways to live. What's growing from this life, this tree, this person? Are you seeing the fruit of God's Spirit in this person's life? Patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, do you see it there? And what about those who are following this religious person? Are they becoming more and more like Jesus, more loving and more generous, more patient, kind, hopeful, humble? Or are they becoming more angry, spiteful, bitter, fearful? What's growing out of this life? And so once again, I think we can answer the question, no, not all religious people are truly searching for God. Jesus says no, and I think our own life experience would say no. And so, if you, if you follow the text, let's narrow the question once again. If all people are not seeking and finding God, and if all religious people are not seeking and finding God, what about Christian people? Write this down. Do all Christians search for God? What does Jesus say? Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You know, when a person is born into a family, they wear that family name. Now, they may hurt the family, and they may dishonor that family, but unless steps are taken to cut them out of the will, they stand to inherit the blessings of that family. It's the same thing with our country. If a person is born into this country, they are citizens. Now, they may be violent citizens. They may be lawbreakers, but still, they are citizens. But something's interesting here. In both cases... The person didn't choose their family name. And they didn't choose their citizenship. They were born into the family. They were born into their national status. And I say that because in a sense, it's the same for a Christian. There is a birth, but it's a birth of choice. Someone else can choose my name. Someone else can choose my nationality, but no one else can choose my faith. God has no grandchildren. He only has children. And so do all Christians who wear that name really search for God? I think Jesus says it depends upon several things. 
like sincerity. When I choose Jesus as Lord, I also choose the depth and the quality of that commitment. I like the way Arthur Gordon has said it. Nothing is easier than saying words. Nothing is harder than living by them day by day. It depends on sincerity. But it also depends on submission. Look at the text. Jesus says that some call him Lord, but have not made him Lord. And so what's driving my faith? Why do I follow? Is it faith? Is it fear? Is it love? Or is it routine? Is it gratitude? Or is it compulsion? And so I think we can answer this question too. No, not all Christians are really searching for God. Now, notice how we've moved from all people to all religious people to all religious people who wear the name of Jesus. Now, I want you to know, this is not my little scenario here. We've been reading Scripture. This is Jesus moving through a line of thought, narrowing the point as he goes. And so let's narrow it one more time. Let's make it a little more uncomfortable. Write this down. Do all active Christians search for God? What does Jesus say? Verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, Jesus has already said it's not everyone who says but does. And now he seems to be saying it's not even everyone who does. And I'm thinking, just how narrow are you going to become, Jesus? Have you seen that commercial of the guy who says, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on television. And then he proceeds to give you medical advice. And I know it's not substantial advice, but it's not the man's advice that intrigues me. It's his credibility. I'm not a doctor. I'm acting like the doctor. I'm pretending. I'm impersonating. So take me seriously. And it seems that the line between fantasy and reality is so blurred that sometimes we don't see the difference anymore. We can extend a handshake and pretend friendship without being real at all. And we don't have to work at making it real because it's acceptable to just go through the motions. That's the way we are. But in matters of faith, Jesus is after something else. Something of substance. Something of depth. In verse 22, he asks about our words. Why do we talk? Why do we teach? Is it a job, a duty, a ritual? Or is it a joy, an honor, an opportunity, a privilege? He also asks, notice about our deeds, because I think it's possible to be masters at doing activity without meaning any of it. 
And so, not everyone who says but does. And not everyone who does but means. And so after asking some honest questions, I want us to follow Jesus' words further and think about living an honest life. Because you see, he's been narrowing the field down from all people to all religious people to all Christian people to all active Christian people. And he's been leading us to one major point. And here's what I want you to write down. What does God really want? Relationship. Relationship. That's what he wants. Verse 23, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Now, does he want our words and deeds? Yes, he wants them. Does he want our Christian activity? Absolutely, he wants it. But we've already seen that we can give him all of this and still not offer the one thing he wants the most, relationship. You can see it in his punchline. I never knew you. You wore my name. There was all that activity, but we never got to know each other. What God wants most of all, more than words and deeds, more than Christian activity, is a relationship with us. And that is why he says so painfully, I never knew you. We never got to know each other. When I reflected on Jesus' words, I thought, how is it possible to be so religious and still hear this and not know Jesus? I think the answer takes us back to this two ways metaphor. Write this down. Jesus says there are two ways to build. Two ways to build. Verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds bleat, be, winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So how is it possible to be so religious and to not know Jesus? I hope it doesn't sound too simple. It takes time to know someone. It takes time to know Jesus. That shouldn't surprise us. It takes time for us to know anyone. I spent 41 years with Pam. When we talked yesterday and I compared that conversation with when I asked her to marry me, this woman, I thought she's the woman of my dreams. It's like I didn't know her then because of the time invested in coming to know who she is now. Jesus says, Look at this man building his house. He digs down, looking for rock to lay a solid foundation. And he starts to assemble his house. He takes all the time. But his neighbor is more enterprising. Who needs a foundation? And while the first man is still digging, the second man, he's already finished. And he looks at his neighbor like he's a fool. 
But look again. Rain, wind, floods. Who is the real fool? And what does it mean to build a solid spiritual foundation to really know Jesus? Well, think back through Jesus' words. It means more than hearing God's Word or becoming familiar with it, even more than agreeing with it. It's when you do it. And then he adds, it's even deeper than that. Do you really know Him? So there are two ways to build. And then at the end of the sermon, write this down. There are two ways to respond. And this is his uncomfortable ending. You ever watch a movie and you get to the end and it's uncomfortable? This is uncomfortable. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Notice it says that some were amazed. And I sometimes think that we admire the response of those who listen to Jesus in amazement. We admire it. And there is something admirable in it, but there's also something unfinished here. There is a noticeable silence in the story. People listened they were amazed, but notice the conclusion is left open. The, the text carefully refrains from telling us that anyone changed their life. I've done that. Have you done that? I've listened and I've considered a message that had the power to change me. I agreed with it. I appreciated it. But then I went across the street to, to Spring Creek and forgot all about it and didn't change a thing in my life. In fact, I talked about how good that message was with no change. That is the power and that is the deception of cancer's bigger brother. We admire the message. We wear the name. We engage in all the activity but we don't find the cure for our illness. We never come to know Jesus. Suppose a cure could be discovered for cancer, but it was ignored. It was rejected. Could you think of anything more irrational than this? It would be difficult for me to think of anything more irrational. But there is one thing that's more irrational admiring Jesus without coming to know him. And that's why I asked this last question. Do you know him? Do you have a plan to know him? Won't you pray with me? Father, thank you for your relentless pursuit of us. Thank you for being that father watching for the prodigal son to come home. Thank you for being that shepherd 
searching for lost sheep. Thank you for being that widow looking for the lost coin. Thank you for being the God of the universe, patiently waiting and searching for your creation. Father, we want to know you. And you've given us Jesus as a picture of who you are. God, move in our hearts to search for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. This morning, if we can help you make a decision for Jesus to be baptized, we'd love to help you. If you need any kind of prayer, we'd love to help you with that. Won't you come as we stand and sing?